Good morning. I, for one, am glad we sang a Christmas song this morning. I've been waiting for that. I've been ready for that. Quite honestly, don't tell anybody I said this, but I've been singing Christmas music and listening to Christmas music since the first cool front came in. And now that Thanksgiving has passed, it's now socially acceptable. So all the don't sing before Thanksgiving people can just leave me alone. Hey, it's Christmas time. Let's celebrate it. And speaking of which... December 8th and 9th, you're going to hear some fantastic Christmas music. Our choir and orchestra is going to be presenting uh, downtown Christmas for here for us right here. Hopefully by then the stage will be done. But either way, they're going to be here. You're going to hear some great music. That's a Saturday night. First time since I've been here, we're doing it a Saturday night and a Sunday morning. And you are welcome to come more than one night, especially or more than one presentation, especially if you bring somebody with you. So be thinking of who you can invite. The Sunday after that, we're going to have an outside group called His Hope. They're going to come and do a Christmas concert for us that Sunday night, uh, the 16th. So that's another opportunity to invite someone. And then Christmas Eve, we've got two services, 4.30 and 6, both identical. Listen, this is the time of year when people are thinking about spiritual things who don't usually think about spiritual things. So this is an opportunity for you to bring them to this place, and and they're going to experience something non-threatening, something they're going to enjoy, something beautiful that, that shares the gospel with them in a very welcoming and effective way. So be thinking of who you can invite to to those different events. Also, be thinking about what you want to do this next year. I know that we're still in 2018. 2019 is right around the corner, and we have big plans for that. Our, Our theme for the coming year is all in. We want to challenge you and me, every single one of us, to pursue Christ like we never have before, to read through the entire Bible, to pray for lost people, to engage hands on in missions and to increase our generosity. If each one of us takes those four challenges, can you imagine what God can do in our lives and in our church's life if we seek Him that powerfully? And I know it's big. I know I know each one of those things is really challenging, and, and some of them are more than others for you, depending on your situation and your personality. But you can do this, and we're going to be there for you. We're going to be right alongside of you, all of us doing these challenges and growing in a, in a spectacular way. So whatever else you want to do this coming year, you may want to start jogging or you may want to learn a new language, that's fine. But think about these four challenges and pray about them. Pray about them for our entire church. Because what's going to matter more than whether you gain or lose weight or whether you learn to speak Spanish or Japanese or Russian, what's going to matter more than that is what you do for the kingdom of God and how you grow in Him. So speaking of that, let's take a look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We're closing our series today. This morning when our staff got together and we prayed, Alan said, so this is our last Sunday in heaven, huh? Well, I mean, when you put it that way... We, we've been talking about this for a while. Um, I, I wanted to share with you this morning, uh, when I was four or five years old, my aunt, uh, Retta, lived in Houston, and we used to come visit her. I remember on one particular visit, I was probably five years old, and my aunt Retta, who is very much her love language is giving, she had brought me a gift, and it was a little switch plate from the light switch in my bedroom, and it, I still have it to this day. In fact, when I was at my mom and dad's house, I meant to take a picture and show you, but it's it's still on the wall in the room that was my bedroom when I was growing up, and it's, it's just a little switch plate over the light switch, and it's got a little cartoon image of a little boy, and it says Jeff. And I remember when she gave it to me, I was amazed. It was a country kid. I, didn't, I wasn't around stuff like this. And I said, how did they know my name? <laughs> and without even blinking, she said, well, I told them about you. I've told everybody in Houston about Everybody here knows you. I believed that. 
I, I thought my Aunt Retta was telling me the truth. And so I, I can remember on that trip, anytime we'd see someone, I'd, I'd say hi. And I'd say, hey, I'm Jeff. And they'd be like, well, well, hi, Jeff. And I'm thinking, yeah, they know me, right? And, and you know, eventually I clued in, you know, about my freshman or sophomore year of college when I was in, you know, it, it finally dawned on me. But, uh, you know, the thing is, when we're little, we can believe stuff that isn't true, and it really doesn't hurt anything. It really doesn't hurt anything if you're four or five years old and you believe in fairies or dragons or gnomes or, you know, magical talking mystery-solving dogs, right? I mean, that doesn't affect anything because you, you're not in a position to make decisions for yourself, so your beliefs can't get in the way of you making good decisions. For instance, me, at five years old, it's not like I was going to run away from home and go hang out with my four million new friends in Houston, right? I wasn't going to pedal my bicycle to spring and meet little five-year-old Carrie Thacker and say, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I'm Jeff. I'm the Jeff. You want to watch you know, some Sesame Street with me? Come on. Those things couldn't happen because I was little. So my beliefs weren't that important. But now that I'm an adult, our, as adults, even as teenagers, once we get to the point where we're starting to make choices for ourselves, our decisions, our, our, our beliefs matter. Our beliefs matter more than anything else. And what you believe about God and what you believe about his commands matters more than your beliefs about anything. And I'd put it a different way. As a kid, you can believe something and it doesn't really affect your life, but as an adult, your beliefs change everything. So you can measure how much you really believe in a particular truth based on whether it affects your life or not. So if you say to me, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, I'd say, so what? What difference has it made in your life? Well, sure, I believe Jesus died for my sins and then rose again the third day. So what? Has it changed the way you live? Yeah, I believe Jesus is coming back someday and he's going to judge all of us. So what? Does that, does that mean you live in a, a way different than you otherwise would? Because if your life isn't different than it would be otherwise, maybe you don't really believe these things. And we've been talking about heaven for 10 weeks now. And before this started, you may have thought, there's no way we can talk 10 weeks about that one subject. In fact, some of you may think, why would a preacher give basically a fifth of the, of the calendar year to one particular subject when there's so many subjects to cover in the Bible? That's how important this is. The way we look at the afterlife, the things we believe about the world to come, eternity, should impact our life now in a very profound way. This is why it's so important that our vision of the future is not some mystical, wispy, ethereal thing that we can't wrap our minds around. It's not enough for us to just say, well, you know, when we die, I'm sure we go to a better place. No, that's why it's so important for us to know where we're headed, to be able to picture it. That's the scripture we're going to look at. So I, before I get into that, before I get into the scripture, it's very important for us to establish what we've said so far. So I've written sort of a, a uh, summary paragraph of what this series has said about heaven so far. And I want you to tell me whether you agree with this or not. And I want you to do it. I want you to pretend that you're not a predominantly white Southern Baptist congregation. I want you to get, you know, go full on Pentecostal, go full on Black Baptist Church, you know, actually respond, okay? So if I say a sentence that you agree with, say amen. Or if you don't like amen, say that's right, or yes, or preach it, brother, or mm -hmm, I know that's right, or I don't care. Just agree in some way. Now listen, I, I want to speak frankly to you. I did this at the 830 service. 
On average, those folks have been around longer than you. They, they, they are used to doing things the same way. They got into this, okay? So you've got no excuses, all right? You ready? So I'm going to read this sentence. If you agree, anytime I say something you agree with, say it out loud, okay? In some way. You ready? Okay, here's the truth about heaven that we've covered so far. The person who knows Jesus Christ has nothing to fear about the life beyond this one. When that person dies, he or she is immediately with the Lord. Now, that's not the end. That's not the ultimate goal. There's something even better than that. Yeah, you had to think about that, right? When Christ returns, his body will be resurrected. His body, our bodies, will be resurrected and transformed, and we will have new, imperishable, glorious bodies. The earth will also be redeemed, and we will live in a world with no sin, no pain, no sadness, and no death. We will be rewarded in that world for the things we did for the kingdom, rewards that will never go away. Any disappointments we experience in this life will be more than compensated in the next. Anything we sacrifice for the sake of Christ will be repaid hundredfold. Best of all, we will see God face to face. We will know him. We will serve him with limitless joy forever and ever. I know, I know that's our destiny because we have been saved by God's amazing grace. Amen. Good. Good stuff. But so what? What difference does it make? What difference does it make in your life? I'm glad, you, I'm glad you got into that exercise. That's good. I'm glad you agree with me. But would someone who wasn't sitting here right now, would they say, there's something different about you? You live differently. Why is that? See, it should make a difference. Paul writes in Colossians 3, and this is a passage I've been quoting all throughout this, this series. I hope, I hope it's kind of buried itself in your mind. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See what he says there? He says, set your hearts. Understand, the heart is not, he's not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood through your body. He's talking about the seat of your emotions, your, your intentions, your desires. And he says, set your heart, set your heart on things above. And just so you know, he's not just saying, Think about Jupiter and Mars and think about the sun and the moon. No, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think about things that are above this world, things that are outside this world. Then he goes on, he says, set your minds on things above. Now he's talking about your thoughts, your, your dreams, your goals, your desires. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Have you ever heard, anybody here, raise your hand, if you've heard someone say, you know, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever heard that statement about anybody? Maybe it's just me. Okay, so people have said that before, and I think their point is, well, he's just so religious, it is possible to be too religious. I agree with that. But it's not possible to be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. If you are truly heavenly minded, if your mind is set on things above, you are going to live a life that is better than you would otherwise live. And we'll talk about how in just a moment. He goes on to say, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Wait a second. That's in past tense. What is he talking about? 
you and I are, are, are breathing oxygen right now, right? Unless we're in the matrix or something, we're actually alive, right? He's saying, when you came to Christ, your old self died. You're a new person. He goes on and says in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, that is our hope. That is our living hope, like we just sang about, that Christ is returning. When it happens, we will see him. We will experience him, and we will appear with him in glory. We will have glorified, resurrected bodies, and we will walk with him in a redeemed earth. So Paul's point is, that we should think about heaven all the time. That at least once a day we should spend some time looking forward to it. Maybe, maybe when we're watching the news and we get discouraged or depressed, we can say, yeah, someday it's not going to be like this. Or, or maybe when we're just, just sort of daydreaming, instead of daydreaming about the next vacation we're going to take or, or this weekend's activities, let's, let's daydream about someday, someday when I'm on the new earth, here's what I think is going to happen. Or when we're missing a loved one who died before us. Or, or when we're, we're, just, we're just a little bit down and we need something to look forward to. We should think on these things. We should set our minds on things above. Our future home should be our present obsession. It should be the subject of our daydreams and our hopes. Well, what difference will that make if it is? See, I believe Paul was a man who practiced what he preached. I'm not overstating it. Paul was definitely a sinner just like you and me. He needed God's grace just as much as us. And even after he came to Christ, I'm sure he made lots and lots of mistakes. But for my money, here's a guy who, aside from Jesus, did more to change the world for good than anybody who's ever lived. He's the guy who God used to take more than anybody else, more than any other individual, God used Paul to take Christianity from being a little Jewish sect to being a worldwide movement. He's the guy more than anybody else who God used to teach us what the cross means and why it's important that Jesus rose again and what our hope is for the future and how we actually get saved. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Those are the words of Paul. And he said it in so many different ways. So here's a great man and I think what made him great is the presence of God's Holy Spirit in his life, but also because he lived every day knowing eternity's coming. He lived every day with his mind set on things above. And how did that change him? I'm going to talk about three things this morning that uh, an eternity-minded life did for Paul that I think it should do for us as well. If you've got your mind set on Christ, if you've got your mind set on things above, if you really believe this stuff, here's how you'll live. Three things. Number one, you'll have a holy discontent. You'll have a holy discontent. You won't be contented with things in this world. Why? Because you're going to, want to, des you're going to have a desire to change things right now. You're going to have a desire to make things the way they're supposed to be. Years ago when I was pastoring another church, I baptized a young teenage girl, probably 14, 15 years old. And afterwards, the family came to me as soon as church was over. They said, hey, we got a bunch of family in from out of town, so we're having dinner at our house. Um, do you want to come over? So me and my wife and our little girl, we went to this house, and we had dinner with this family. And after dinner was over, and we're just sitting, and we're visiting um, over on the other side of the room, the, the girl that I baptized and her younger sister, who's probably seven or eight at the time, get into an argument over something. And the reason we realized there was an argument going on was because the, the, the little sister, the little seven or eight-year-old, said in a very loud voice, I saw what you did, and you just got baptized. 
And, and it was awkward, of course. You know, I'm sure the parents were like, not in front of the preacher. But it was outstanding theology. Because what that little girl was expressing was, hey, you, you just got into water in front of a bunch of people and you said, I'm not the same person anymore. I've died. Now Christ is alive in me. And now you're doing the same old stuff again. See, she understood something that Paul wrote in, in Romans. Every time I baptize someone, if you've grown up in a Baptist church or another church that does believers baptism by immersion, you've probably heard this phrase, either from me or from them, uh, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. There's nothing magical about those words, by the way. That's not some little spell they taught us in seminary, okay? That, that's, that's the words of Romans 6. Paul wrote those words to say that baptism is not just some random activity you do. It's not just uh, the, the requirements for joining a church family. This is, this is a pledge you're taking. You're giving a testimony. You're, you're preaching a sermon without words when you get baptized. You're saying, Christ died for me. He was buried. He rose again. Because I believe that and because I've trusted in him, I'm no longer the same person. In fact, Paul goes on in the very next verse in that passage in Romans 6, and he says this, Romans 6, 6 through 7, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that's a powerful truth and one that any one of us before we were Christians would have laughed at. Before you became a Christian, especially if you got saved as an adult, if someone would have come up to you and said, hey, do you know you're a slave to sin? You would have been like, no, I'm not. I can do whatever I want to do. And I'm no more sinful than you are. So I, I'm not a slave to anything. But we were. You know, we look at people who struggle with addictions, whether it's to alcohol or, or drugs or pornography or, or gambling, and we think, oh, that poor soul, they, they, they can't overcome this. This thing has it. We were caught in the same thing. Even if it wasn't an addictive substance, we were caught in sin in such an extent that we couldn't do right consistently. We couldn't overcome the pattern of sin that had developed in our lives. And even when we tried to do good, we'd realize, oh, I'm doing this out of the wrong motives. It's a terrible way to live. And Paul says, Christ has bought our freedom from that slavery. So when we get baptized, we're saying, the chains have been broken from my wrists and my ankles, and I am free to follow the Savior. Doesn't mean I'll always do the right thing. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I know I'm on the way to it. From now on, no looking back. Now on, I'm a new person. Paul, in fact, in the, in the text for today, when Paul has said, keep your mind on things above, because when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory, you might expect him to say, so since we've got that to look forward to, it really doesn't matter how you live now because good things are coming. And if you sin now, if you're just the same old guy now, no big deal because you're going to be something great in heaven. That's the exact opposite of what he says. Look with me, verse 5 of Colossians 3. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Whenever he says a therefore, he's saying, because of what I just said, here's the truth. Because we have this heaven to look forward to, because we're someday going to be perfect, let's put to death the sin now. And then he goes on in verse 12 of that same chapter, Colossians 3, 
And he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what he's talking about is, okay, so you got baptized. You said, I'm a new person. All this old stuff is gone. I'm, I'm still struggling with the sin nature, but it doesn't rule me anymore. I'm a new person, but Christ doesn't leave me unclothed. He gives me this brand new clothing to wear. Now I wear the garments of righteousness in Jesus Christ, and I'm growing in things like gentleness and patience and kindness and humility and compassion. See, there's a scene. There's a scene in the movie Glory. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I highly recommend it. So Glory is the story of the first black soldiers to fight in the U.S. Army. It's during the Civil War. A lot of these guys are former slaves. Suddenly the U.S. Army says, hey, we've got this great opportunity for a fighting force. Why not give them the chance? Let's get over ourselves. Let's just let them fight. So midway through the movie, this this group of of men have been training for, for a long, long time. They haven't fought yet, but they've been training, and suddenly they get boxes in the mail, and it's their uniforms, and they're so excited. They can't wait to put on the blue coat. They can't wait to put on the pants and the, and the boots and the cap. Why are they so excited about this? Because even though they've been soldiers for a long time, they still look like slaves. They're still wearing the same old ratty, torn up, beat up stuff they wore when they were out in their master's cotton field. But now, now they look like soldiers. Now they look like what they really are. See, that to me is a perfect picture of what Paul's talking about. We know we're not just plain old sinners anymore. We're not unredeemed, lost people anymore. Now we've been redeemed. Now we've been adopted into his family. Now we're sons and daughters of the king. I don't want to look like a slave anymore. I want to look like a child of the king. I don't want to look like a... a, a guy who's addicted to sin, I want to look like a guy who's becoming just like Jesus. I'm impatient about who I am. At least I better be. If I believe in eternity, if I believe the the truth about heaven, I need to be impatient with who I am now and longing to become something better. Is that present in your life? Are you too busy making excuses for why you keep on doing the same old dumb things over and over again? Not just in ourselves. We ought to be impatient to see the world around us change. That's how Paul was. When, when Paul, when he traveled from city to city spreading the gospel, you know why he did that? Because he wanted to see God's kingdom come now. He knew someday every knee was going to bow and every tongue was going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wanted to see that happen now. And we ourselves, we live in a world that, where there's so many people who need to hear, so many things that need to change. We're looking forward to a world without sin, without poverty, without homelessness, without racism, without hatred, without disease, without family dysfunction. We should want that to start now. Now, can we wipe all that out ourselves? No, but every single time we change the world a little bit, we make it a little bit more like the new earth, we're giving testimony to what we have to look forward to. We should be discontented with the world the way it is. If we, if we believe in a world where everybody's going to know Jesus someday, we should want that to happen now. If we believe in heaven, we won't just go to church. We'll be the church. The hands and feet of Jesus everywhere we go. And the world will be changed because we live among them. So, holy discontent should be characteristic of us. Second of all, holy joy. Paul had a holy joy about him because he did not overvalue temporary things. And that's how we get joy too. When we put the right priority on the right things. Think about the messages this world sends us. 
This world, for instance, says that romantic love is one of the highest things, maybe the highest thing of all. And I'm not, I'm not trying to spit at romantic love. I, I, I fell in love with my wife. That's a, that was a wonderful experience. I still love her with all my heart. That's great. But if you listen to songs today, if you watch movies today, heck, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to start a fight, ladies, but if you watch those Hallmark Christmas movies, they all end with a love story, don't they? That's not a bad thing, but we get the message, the subtle message that that's what life is all about. You meet that perfect someone and you fall in love with them and you live happily ever after. And that's not what life is about. That message is responsible for so much depression because every time a teenager gets dumped or asks someone out and gets rejected, it's the end of the world because I don't have that special someone or I thought she was that special someone and she thought differently or every time an adult reaches a certain age and is like, oh my gosh, all my friends are married and I'm not married or every time uh, a person finds themselves in a marriage that's not as happy as they thought it was going to be or they go through divorce. We feel like our world has ended because the highest possible good is to be married to your soulmate, right? That's not the message of Scripture. Message, uh, scripture holds up marriage as something very high, but it's not the ultimate thing. In the same way, the world says, well, you've got to have money. You've got to have stuff. You need to be able to afford a, a certain lifestyle. Obviously, you need to be able to drive this kind of car. Obviously, you need to be able to take vacations to a place this nice. Obviously, you need to be able to dress in clothes that are this stylish. How can you possibly be happy? I mean, think about how often Jesus talked about money in the scriptures. Someone has done the math. Jesus talked more about money than either heaven or hell combined, but he was talking to people who had barely anything, people who were one step from starvation, and he was telling them, don't worry about money, don't worry about clothes, don't worry about all this stuff. What would he say to us when we have so much more and we're so fixated on it? Or for others, uh, we, we would think the ultimate thing, you can't live without being attractive and youthful in appearance, right? I mean, gosh, that's, that's what we look up to. That's, that's what's on the cover of all our magazines. That's what stars in all of our movies. You know, don't you, that that doesn't last, all right? I, I could show you pictures of me when I was 21. You'll, you'll see, it doesn't last. I mean, you, you look around. It's going to happen to you guys, too. See, Paul had none of these things. Paul wasn't married. He didn't have kids. Paul didn't have money to speak of. He was planting churches from scratch. No one could pay him a salary. He had to earn his living on the side by selling tents and building them himself. Paul, by his own admission, was not an attractive human being. He said, people will say about me, I write these great letters, but then they meet me and they're disappointed. <laughs> and yet, he was so joyful. Here's a man so joyful that the letters he wrote from prison, from prison, are some of the most joyful documents that have ever been written. In Philippians, he writes and says, I don't know if I'm going to be executed or set free, but either way, I win. Because if they execute me, I get to be straight with Jesus right then. If they set me free, I get to be with you. Either way, I'm happy. 
At the end of his life, he writes the letter to 2 Timothy. If you've never read 2 Timothy, I know we're going to read the whole Bible next year, but take the time to read these four chapters. It's just so powerful. Think about a man on death row. He knows he's going to die. They're sharpening the blade right now to take his head, and he's writing these words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul never once in any of his letters say, says, hey guys, would you pray that I would be released? Or hey guys, would you pray that they would treat me better? He's just not worried about it. He's got joy that they can't take away. Why? Because he knows what's coming. He knows the reward he will receive. Now, did Paul probably have sad moments? Were there times where he thought to himself, man, it'd be nice to go home to a wife and kids sometimes? Oh, it'd be nice if I had enough money to get away once in a while, maybe to have a house of my own. Did Paul ever say, you know, I wish my eyes weren't failing. I wish I didn't have this arthritis in my back. I, I, wish, I wish I didn't have so many people who were my enemies. Probably. But he knew those things are only temporary. As good as they are, none of those things are bad. They're just temporary, and the real joy is to come. Now, I know this is, this is a, a corny joke, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So there, there was a very, very wealthy man, very devout Christian, very wealthy Christian. He was, he was praying to God one day, and he says, you know, Lord, I, I'm thankful for grace. I'm thankful for heaven, but it just, it just saddens me to know that I can't take anything with me because I've done things the right way. I've worked hard. I've, I've saved, and, and, and it just saddens me that I did all of this, and it's all going to go away. I don't even have kids to leave it to. Could you make an exception in my case? Could you let me bring at least something from this world that I've earned? And, and God says, I'll make an exception in your case, but here's the deal. Whatever you bring has to fit inside a suitcase. And he says, okay, thank you, Lord. And so toward the end of his life, he's, he's trying to figure out what am I going to take? And then it hits him. Oh, I'll take it all. So he, he liquidates his assets. He buys gold. So in, in essence, he buys all of his income's worth or all of his savings worth in gold. And, and so on the day he's standing outside the New Jerusalem, he's pulling this very heavy suitcase behind him and the angel comes out to greet him and he's like, oh, I know who you are. Oh, I can't wait to see. What did, what did you bring? I've been wondering what you were going to bring. Can you, do you mind? Would you open the suitcase so I can see? And so the man cr cracks open the suitcase. He opens it up and inside are all these gleaming gold bars and the angel goes, I don't get it. You brought pavement? Because you know it's paved with gold, right? I mean, you get that, right? Okay. That's funnier in my head. But um, <laughs> the point is, we can cling so tightly to the things of this world. We can cling so tightly to the things we think we can't live without that when they're gone or when they don't live up to our expectations, when the hype doesn't pay off, we're devastated. C.S. Lewis famously said, don't put your hope in something you could someday lose. See, Paul put his hope in what he knew he couldn't lose. And that brought him joy. Are you holding on tightly to anything right now but that hope, that hope in Jesus Christ? It's good to enjoy the other stuff. If you've got a suitcase full of gold bars, good on you. If you still look like, if you can still fit in the jeans you fit in in high school, fantastic. If you've got enough money to take a trip around the world today, good deal. If you need a, cha a chaplain on the trip, I'm volunteering. You know, if you've, if you've met your soulmate and you've fallen in love, hallelujah, I'll be glad to do your wedding. But none of those things last forever. 
the inheritance you have looking forward to, that can't be taken away because it's been bought with the blood of Christ. Third thing, so you need to have holy joy that's different than the joy of others. People should look at you and say, how can you still have joy after all you've lost? Here's how. You need to have this holy discontentment where you're constantly striving to improve yourself and become more like Jesus, where you're constantly striving to make the world a better place in his name. But third, you need to have, we need to have a holy recklessness. We need to do things, consistently do things that look foolish unless heaven is real. So years ago when my kids were little, uh, we took, our family took a trip to Fredericksburg, Texas, and outside Fredericksburg, there's, there's this thing called Enchanted Rock. Y'all ever been there? So it's a big, big slab of granite that goes way up into the sky, and you can hike it if you're in moderately good shape. My kids were little, so we were going up really, really slow. And I can remember this very clearly because as we're going up, and I'm really watching my son, because he's probably about three at the time, and we hear this sound, and it sounds like I heard a buffalo coming toward us. And we look up and there's this group of about five or six teenage boys and they're just running down Enchanted Rock. Running. I mean, as fast as they can go. And I'm like, if one of those guys trips, they're going to go, they're going to slide down that mountain and and leave behind a hundred yards worth of skin and blood. It's going to be awful. And and right then I I thought, "This this is a teaching moment for my kids. And so I looked them both in the eyes and said, listen to me, listen to me, because these words could save your life. If in the future you ever see a group of teenage boys all running in one direction, go the other way. Because nothing good is about to happen. There's a reason why car insurance costs so much more for young men, right? There's a reason why I follow a Twitter feed called Darwin Awards that just shows videos of people doing stupid things. 99% of them are male, okay? Men are the ones that, you know, light the firecracker and hold it, right? We're the ones that try to skateboard down a stair rail. We're the ones, you know, that go, that, that go, hey, look, there's a hole in the ground. I wonder what lives there. Well, let me put my hand down there and see. I mean, we, we do stupid stuff. When I talk about recklessness, that's not what I'm talking about. When you do stupid things just for the sake of being dumb, that's not what I'm talking about. Recklessness that I'm talking about is Here's what I know God wants me to do because it's in his word, because his Holy Spirit has shown me. Here's something I know I'm called to do, but right now everybody thinks it's a bad idea. That's the kind of recklessness I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of recklessness that the world says you shouldn't do that, but you do it anyway. Even your family, even Christian friends say, hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you, but you do it anyway because you know you're called by God where your own flesh is saying, you know, I I really think I should sit this one out because God wants me to be happy and comfortable. Actually, no, he doesn't. I'm talking about taking risks in accordance with what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When's the last time you did something in accordance with that verse? When's the last time you risked anything for Jesus? I I think about Paul. Paul lived his whole life that way. He wasn't out there to gain anything for himself. He was out there to give it all, to give it all up to the kingdom because he knew that in the end, Christ would reward him. And the, the ultimate story of that for me in Paul's life is one day he's preaching in the town of Lystra. This is in the book of Acts. In the town of Lystra, he's preaching and the enemies of the gospel suddenly attack him and they drag him outside the city and they pick up rocks and they throw rocks at him until he is bleeding and he's stopped moving. They just assume he's dead. 
I mean, they just leave him for dead. And all of Paul's friends gather around him. He's unconscious. He looks dead. But suddenly he revives. His eyes open. And he gets up. And then you know what he does? He walks back into the city of Lystra. That blows my mind. I got to tell you, I want to be that guy who does things like that. I'll be honest with you, I'm not. I'm the guy that says, you know, I'm not really called to preach in Lystra. You got a little comfy place where I can preach to people who believe like me? I'll go there. But I want to be Paul. I want to be that guy who says, I don't care what you're going to do to me. Because if you kill me, you're actually doing me a favor. I want to be the guy who says, it doesn't matter what you do to me or what it does to my reputation. I just care that there's people who haven't heard yet. That there's evil that needs to be confronted. That there's lostness that needs to be transformed. I, I just care that God's given me this life and it's a short one and I want to make it count. When's the last time you did something really risky? You know, about half a century ago, there was a, a big story in Life magazine about five young American missionaries who were murdered in Ecuador. And that's the first time the world learned the name of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a brilliant young man, could have done just about anything with his life. He was a student at Wheaton College in Illinois, studying for the ministry, and he read an article about a tribe of Indians, the Waranis, down in Ecuador, who lived uh, in virtual Stone Age conditions. Never heard the gospel, never really had any contact with any Westerners. So he convinced four of his college friends, let's go down there. Let's, let's just give our lives to reaching this tribe for the gospel. And just when it looked like they were making progress, no one really knows what caused it, but a group from that tribe came and speared them all to death. A few months later, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's widow, and Rachel Saint, the sister of one of the men who was killed, they went to Ecuador themselves. Now, this is, this is really reckless. They went back to that same tribe and took up the work that their husband, that their brother had left behind. And many of the Waranis came to Christ, came to faith in him. In the, mean, in the middle of all of that, that amazing story, Elizabeth decided to publish Jim, her husband's diary, the diary he kept through his college years and through the early days of his mission career. And they became, uh, those diaries became famous. They became uh, a touchstone. In fact, you can, you'll probably in heaven meet thousands of people who went, to mission, to, went into missions because they read Jim Elliott's journals. Here's his most famous sentence, October 28th, 1949. He wrote these words. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that for you again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So you think about it. If you were a friend of Jim Elliott's in the early 1950s and you're a Christian and he says, I'm going to go I'm going to go share the gospel with this group of people that have never heard about Jesus before. And you say, Jim, you're brilliant. You could be an attorney. You could be a doctor. You could be a successful businessman. You could run for Congress. You could do anything you want. Why are you going to, why are you going to do this? You've got a wife. You've got a little baby daughter. Why, how can you leave them? I mean, there's all kinds of things you could say to him. He said, none of those things are things I can keep. I'm going to, 
I'm gonna risk the loss of those things for the sake of something I cannot possibly lose. And don't you know every day in heaven that he runs across one of those Waranis who wouldn't have been saved if he and those five hadn't gone? Don't you know he thinks to himself, it was worth it? I'm not saying you have to be a martyr. There might be some future missionary legends in this room, but I'm not saying you have to go overseas to accomplish God's will. I'm just saying that Jesus didn't suddenly get safe sometime after the Apostle Paul. We just stopped really believing. We adopted a a sort of amalgam of Christianity and the American dream that's not really in Scripture. Isn't it time to start living a life that looks like it has eternity in mind? Isn't Isn't it time to do something risky, something that makes your stomach churn a little bit, something that you know is right, but is not quite as comfortable as you wish it was? When's the last time you did that? If it's been a while, pray and say, Lord, show me what I should be doing and give me the courage to do it. Because otherwise, otherwise God and a watching world could hear all these songs we sing and all these sermons we preach and they'd be justified in saying, so what? 